power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Those amazing words, aren't they? What a powerful message. Thank you guys for, for, uh, for leading us in worship and, uh, and helping us to worship. You know, today marks a special day because up until now, you could measure the weeks that I've been here in single digits. But today, I've been here for 10 weeks. So, And uh, so I'll be in the double digits for another 90 weeks. So, so that's an exciting time. You know, um, during those 10 weeks, you know, it, it's, a new, it's a new environment for me. I come in and I, and I don't know you. 10 weeks ago, I was looking out at a, a lot of strangers. Now I know so many of you. And there's still some new faces I want to meet. And uh, so as you see me in the hallways, if you don't know me by name, by, or if I don't know you by name by now, catch me in the hallways. And, uh, and I want to learn your names. I want to get to know who you are. I spent these 10 weeks really getting to know you, assessing where the church has been, where the church is at, and, and praying for the vision for where the church is, is going to go from here. And I'll tell you, little by little, the Lord has been clarifying that vision for, uh, for myself. The pastors uh, and I have met every Monday, and we talked through where the church is at, where we're going. And, and I want to tell you, there's a high level of excitement right now amongst us. Uh, as we're seeing how God is clarifying what, what that vision is for us. The mission never changes, does it? The mission does not change. Jesus Christ gave us the, the great commission, and that is our, our mission. Those are our marching orders. But the vision of how we're going to see that happen right here uh, is exciting to see. Uh, in fact, at our last deacons meeting, just shared a glimpse of, of what the Lord has, has been uh, leading in, in, uh, amongst us as pastors and they got excited, too. So I can't wait. In fact, one of these days, we'll take one week break from Joshua and just talk about where the Lord has taken us as a church. Does that sound, does it sound all right? And uh, I look forward to that. But, you know, as I, as I look at this, as, I, as we study um, Joshua together, I cannot help uh, but notice in this journey of Joshua how much there is a parallel structure between the history of Israel and really the history of Heritage Baptist Church. In, in so many ways, I can relate what we're going through and where we have been and where we are going to what's been going on in life of Israel, where they're at right now, and where they're headed as well. And uh, I could not help but notice how the story of Israel really matches the story of where we are right now, especially right where we're at in the story of the book of Joshua. As we're studying the book of Joshua uh, together, I want, I want us to think through a couple of phases that Israel has gone through and how this relates to where we are at. The first phase I'm going to call the Red Sea phase. This is immediately after uh, they saw the plagues in Egypt, they saw what was going on in Egypt, they saw how the Lord was proving his power over all of the gods of Egypt, and then they, they are walking away from Egypt, but the Egyptians follow them, they come to the Red Sea, and what does God do? He produces this amazing miracle. And in fact, from this point on, for, for centuries, they changed their calendar. The Jewish calendar was based on after the Exodus. You know how we have after Christ, is how we measure our years. Theirs were measured after the Exodus. It was such a, main, uh, such a large event. And in that, in that phase, we saw how God worked in just miraculous ways. And when you think back uh, in, in Heritage Baptist Church's history, have you seen... Or can you see any time in the history where you just saw God do some amazing things? Some of you have been here long enough to remember some of that. I'm new. I'm catching up on the history and learning what's going on. 
But uh, there was actually one point in time where this was the fastest growing church in southwest Michigan and possibly even in the, in the state of Michigan. Amen? Amen. And uh, that was, that's an exciting thing. And many people have come to know Christ right here in this church. Amen. And, and, right, and through the relationships that you have with the people in this community. That's the Red Sea phase. We've seen that happen. But then Israel came across what we call, what I'll call the desert phase, or the wilderness phase. The, the, the desert phase is where they were surviving, right? They survived, but it seemed like they were wandering aimlessly. Um, they weren't wandering aimlessly, but it seemed like it. You know, God was teaching them some lessons, right? Remember the first spy account, we talked about this early in the book of Joshua, where they, the spies went into the promised land and they came back, and did they have faith? No. The Israelites did not have faith. They said there are giants in the land. The walls are too big. The the armies are too strong. There's no way we could do this. They forgot how powerful God was, even though they had just come out of the Red Sea phase. But how quickly we forget. That's what we talked about last week, right? And and they they came out of the Red Sea phase. But God wasn't done with them. And so he he would take them and and he would lead them through a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire at night. And at times, God would get up. And he would move. And I'm sure there was excitement around the camp as the Israelites would get their things and pack up their tents and they, and they would follow the pillar and then the pillar would stop at just another place in the desert. And this happened time and time again as the Lord took them from place to place in the desert. And it seemed, I'm sure, to the Israelites like God was leading them nowhere. Can you, can you, uh, uh, can you associate with that feeling at least? Where are we going? What's the direction that we're headed? We don't know. But God all along was leading them through lessons, teaching them how to follow him because he still had in mind a promise that he made all the way back to Abraham about leading his people into the promised land. And God never fails on his promises. Amen? Amen. We see that that time and time in scripture. But they had to go through that desert phase to learn some of the lessons that that they needed to learn. You know, I think that HBC went through a rough transition as well. Uh, but you know what? You survived. And here you are. And, uh, and, and, and that's an exciting thing. And it may have even seemed, you know, as Pastor Larry came in, uh, his job was not to give a vision for the church. His job was not to give a direction and say, let's move in this direction or let's move in that direction. His job was what? Just to kind of repair some of the things, help teach some of the lessons that needed to be taught, helping learn from some of the things that happened in the past, working to keep things afloat. And so it may have seemed, and probably some of you can associate with this, it may have seemed like, well, we were wandering from place to place, but without a real direction. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and say, how many of us feel like we've been wandering aimlessly or directionless? But I'm sure that there are some in here that have at least felt that way. As I understand it, I would. And even though I've only been here nine to ten weeks, some of you have been here for more than 9 and 10 years, right? Some of you, 30, you're close to 30 years. And so it might seem like, uh, like only survival, but you know what? From what I can tell in the last 9 and 10 weeks from meeting with you, I can see how God has used the last two years to really teach some great lessons to this church. Amen? And I think that God is not done. I think he's, he is, his plan is in place. And I feel like we're right at the same place where Israel was because the next stage that we just uh, have been talking about for the last week or so is the Jordan River phase. 
what I mean by the Jordan River phase is where God reproduces a miracle that he already did all the way back to the Red Sea phase, reminding us that this is the same God. This is the same God who has led us through the Red Sea. It's the same God who's going to lead us through the Jordan River. But the Jordan River is also kind of a transitional phase because there's a difference before the Jordan River. Where were they? In the desert. But once they cross the Jordan River, which is where we're at in the story now, where are they at? They're in the promised land. This is an exciting phase. It's a, it's, in, in, in one sense, it's more exciting than the Red Sea phase because the Red Sea phase is escaping something, but the Jordan River phase is entering something great. And uh, this is the Jordan River phase. And, and I, I got to tell you, I see evidences of that happening right now. Uh, this week... Uh, just this week alone, I've met with several couples who said, we have been visiting, we've been checking things out, and, and we want to make this our church. Uh, I had another person even tell me this morning, hey, I want to talk about membership because I would like to become a member of this church. And, you know, I can just see that the excitement is developing. Are you feeling that at all? I hope that you are because we can see how God is, 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 uh, is just moving things in a direction. We're, we're just crossing the river, and I think that's where we are right now. God is proving himself again, and he's beginning to light a fire under a common vision. But it's a transitional phase. It's going to take us, if, if we follow the route that God takes us, into what I call the conquest phase. Just like we find in the story of Joshua, uh, they're getting ready now to enter that conquest phase. This is a picture of Jericho, uh, and you see the walls coming down, and we begin to see God tearing down the walls, everything that they were afraid of back when the spies first checked out the land. And we're seeing God do an amazing thing. So as Israel has crossed the Jordan, they've only begun to see the real vision for what God has in store for them. I believe that's exactly where we are. As we, as we develop our vision, we realize what, what's our promised land. My encouragement for us this morning is, is this. It's a, I, think, I believe it's time to get out of the desert and enter the promised land. It's time to get out of that, that phase of trying to figure out what, where we're going. I believe that God is starting to move us in a singular direction. And I'm excited about that. And that's, that's what takes us to Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Let's continue from there and we see where Israel is at. And something to keep in mind in here, it says in verse 1, So it was when the... When all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we crossed over, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. You know, we just sang, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand, right? The powers of darkness are afraid when God starts to do something great. Isn't that true? And, and we see this process, really, what we find is, in, in verse 1, we find that while God was building up the confidence of the Israelites, what was he doing to the enemies of God? The, the Amorites and the Philistines, the Canaanites. What was he doing to them? God was tearing down their confidence. And, and, and when, when God starts to work amongst his believers in a way that... that that people start looking at them and saying, something's different about them. I, I don't get it. There's something different. We talked about this last week, the standing stones. We become standing stones. The world looks at us and says, that's not right. Uh, something's different there. And the powers of hell shake in their boots 
when we take a stand for Christ and we do what he's told us to do. Isn't that true? And, uh, and uh, there, because there's nothing that they can do. And, and uh, so crossing the Jordan River, which was meant to strengthen the, the faith of Israel, had the opposite effect on the enemies. Had an opposite effect. This is the same language we find here. This is that their hearts melted. This is the same language that we find in Rahab. When she said, everyone in Jericho, their hearts have melted because we know what God has done and we're afraid. And for some of those people, that fear turned into the fear of the Lord, the salvation type of fear of the Lord, like Rahab. And for others, um, it just turned into defeat. And we'll, we'll uh, get into that as we move along in, in, uh, in here. But here's the question I want to ask then is, how do we make the transition from the Jordan River phase to the conquest phase? How do we make that transition? And there are two things that we find in, in the book of Joshua, and these two things go together. And I think if we have these two things in order, we will transition out of the desert phase and into uh, uh, the conquest phase. The first one is what we talked about last week, and it's learning the lessons that we needed to from the past. Remember, uh, they, they built an altar. For those who weren't here last week, they built an altar of stones, but the stones were taken out of the center of the Jordan River to, to, so that any future generations could come back and they say, what, what is this all about? And then they could say, these are the stones that were taken out of the middle of the Jordan to remind them that these aren't just stories that they've heard about God. These are historical facts of what God has done. I'll tell you, we live in a world where, where they try to destroy the historicity of scriptures. Even, even Christian churches will... will bow to, the, to our culture and they'll accept whatever theory comes along, evolution and so on. Fact is fact, the Bible is historically accurate. It has never been wrong. God is God. When it, when he, when it says he crossed the Jordan River, he crossed the Jordan River. When it says he parted the Red Sea, he parted the Red Sea. These are not child Sunday school stories. These are historical facts. And so we have that that those lessons from the past, that we serve the same God as Moses did, the same God as Joshua. And that's what we focused on last week. This week, I want to talk about preparing for the future. And that's really what chapter 5, the first half of chapter 5, is all about, is preparing their hearts for the future. And so just as last week there was one symbol that they used, there's another symbol this week that led, that led the people towards the future. The stones are looking to the past, this is looking to the future. So what is it all about? Let's uh, look at uh, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and we'll see exactly what God did to help them look and prepare their hearts for the future. Let's see what it is. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins, it was called. So what did God use? The act of circumcision. I don't know, when I was studying this at first, I thought to myself, really? You know, that's, the, that's the symbol that God used to, to prepare. Hey, they've gone through the desert phase, and now they're ready to go in. What do you want to do to pump these people up? And Circumcision. All right? I don't know about you, but that's not the type of thing I would be looking forward to, right? Um, and, and, and God uses circumcision. So what in the world is this all about? Why did God use this. Well, I think to understand this, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context 
So keep a finger or, or, or your bulletin or something in, in uh, Joshua chapter 5, because we will come back there. But let's, let's go back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I'll read verses 1 through 11. When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All of the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. You reckon to see how this is connecting to Joshua right now? Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. We have to understand that this covenant goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17. Really, in a sense, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, where God makes this covenant with Abraham. The act of circumcision was a sign of the commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. God is saying, hey, I am committing to you, and does God ever break his commitments? Never. So he's saying the sign that your, of your commitment back to me is going to be circumcision. It was a sign of the commitment that Abraham was saying, I'm following God. And God's promised me some amazing things, things that don't seem humanly possible, but I'm going for them. Why? Because I believe in God. And, uh, and so God promised him descendants. Did God keep that command, by the way? Yeah. Are, do we, are the descendants of Abraham still existent today? Did God raise up kings? Not just a king, but kings from Abraham's descendants? Yeah, we see that today. Um, he promised them blessing. He promised them uh, to, that they would be fruitful. Are they fruitful? They're fruitful to this day. Oops, I went backwards. Sorry there. And, uh, and the last, he promised them a specific land, the land of all the Canaanites, now inhabited by the Canaanites and the Amorites, but all of the promised land. And he said, I will give this to your descendants. At this point in the story, has that happened yet? Not yet. At this point, it's still that promise. Had God, been, had God given them descendants? Yes. Blessings? Yes. The land in progress. Right? That's where he was at. Now let's go back to Joshua chapter 5 and see what happens from, uh, from there. Joshua chapter 5, verse 4. 4 through 7. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who, uh, who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way, after they had come out of Egypt. 
For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were, who were men of war came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were circumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. So it was not only a sign of the covenant, but number two, since, really since the time of Egypt, they had not been circumcised. In fact, the Bible calls this the reproach of Egypt. The reproach of Egypt. Um, this was a sign of reproach that from the time of Egypt until now, who was being circumcised? Nobody. That was part of the, the past. It was something that they had done in the past, not something that they did in the present. And so the covenant was on hold because of sin. And so God had told them, because of the sin of disbelief, he said, this generation cannot enter the promised land. I will not let them enter the promised land. But within 40 years, everybody who had come out of, the, of, of Israel, everyone who showed a lack of faith during that first spy account, every single one of them died in the desert with two exceptions. We'll talk about those two exceptions in a few weeks. But outside of those two exceptions, everyone died in the wilderness. The new generation came along, and they kind of lost touch with everything that had gone on in the past. So really from the time of Egypt until now, no one was being circumcised. There was this break in the covenant, not on God's side, but on man's side. There was this break in the covenant between God and his people. And so now we're seeing them make that right. We're seeing that happen. Let's look at the, uh, verse, uh, verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. And we see what happens when God's people obey. Verse 8. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. When the new generation was circumcised, what happened? When they were circumcised, the reproach of Egypt was taken away. The, the, the consequence of that sin wiped away. And then I think it's interesting to see how they named the place Gilgal, which is the Hebrew word for rolling. It means to roll away something. Does that spark your mind to think of anything future that happens? If you fast forward all the way to, to Jesus Christ, he died on the cross to pay for our sins, repairing that covenant with us, the new covenant, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And Jesus Christ paid for our sins on that cross. On the third day, what happened? By the way, this is also a third day, if you remember the history. Right? This is happening on the third day from, uh, from what uh, Joshua said when it, when it would happen. When Jesus, on the third day, he rose from the grave, what happened? The stone rolled away. And we see that concept of a reproach being rolled away. It's amazing to me. The more, we, the more I study the book of Joshua, the more I see Jesus. Isn't it? It's interesting to me that, that the Hebrew word uh, Joshua is talking about the one who saves. What does Jesus mean? The one, he's the one who saves. 
He has the, the Hebrew name for Jesus. All of this is pointing to the fact of who Jesus really is. And when the, the new generation was circumcised, the reproach of Egypt, gone. I don't know about you, but I am glad that the reproach, you can take the reproach all the way back to Adam. The reproach that we have, call it sin, is gone if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If there's anyone here that doesn't understand what I'm talking about, don't leave today without talking to me. I'll give you an opportunity to come. You can talk to me. I'll, I'll uh, show you from God's word how you can know today that your reproach has been rolled away. And uh, there's nothing, there's no decision more important than that. Now let's look at the last few verses of, uh, of this section, verses 10 through 12. It says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the, of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So the last, uh, last part of this is, is number four. Thus begins the new phase. When the people of Israel circumcised themselves and they, in obedience to God, this began a whole new phase. Now you might be wondering, what in the world is this a picture of? Um, this is a pot with some food. This is what I call Algonquin food, all right? When, uh, many of you know that I love to go backpacking. I love canoeing. And I've been to Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada in the double digits of times. I don't even know how many times. And we spent eight days carrying canoes, carrying our own food, sometimes uh, paddling those canoes. But uh, uh, we go out, and everything we have, we carry. So you can imagine how light everything is. And I remember the first trip I went on with my brother Tom and my youth pastor, Bud Hall, and, uh, and a group of other men. And we went on this one trip, and uh, we did not have a lot of food because we were trying to go a long distance. And so uh, we would set up our, or we'd tear down our tents in the morning in the dark. We'd use flashlights. And then we would be on the, the lakes and tra traveling all day long, and we would get to our campsites that night in the dark. I mean, that, that's what our days were like. And I remember one day, about midway through the week, um, we were cooking our food, and we didn't know what it was. We just, something in a bag, you had to soak it before you could even boil it. Imagine that. Um, and so we had to soak it so you could boil it. And, uh, and so we did that, and, and uh, we, we start eating it, and it tasted really good. But the only reason it tasted really good is because we were super hungry. And, and I remember my brother uh, said, man, this is pretty good. I think I would eat this, you know, back home. And he turned on his flashlight to look at it and said, uh, maybe I would. <laughs> I turned his flashlight. I, I was enjoying that better without looking at it. Right. And uh, so we, we looked at it, and we, we ate it, and... And uh, we asked the guy, we said, well, what is this? And you know what he said? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> this is what they were living on. This guy was out there all summer living on this stuff. This whatever you want to call it. The Hebrew word for what is it? You know what it is? Manna. Right? What were they eating? I don't know, just this. Whatever it is. They were living that way. But I also want to tell you that, that on every trip, every time I've gone out, we usually leave on a Saturday and we go for eight days. By Thursday, the topics around the campfire are always the same. You know what, the, you know what everyone's talking about? Food. 
That's what they miss. Oh, I can't wait to get home because I can't wait to get on the road because we can have a Big Mac. And uh, they don't realize what the Big Mac's going to do to their system after eating this way for a whole week. But, uh, but they can't wait. They, they're looking forward to eating real food. I'll tell you, the desert phase, you, you can survive it. But it's nothing like the real deal. From the day that the Israelites circumcised themselves, it says that they ate of the produce of the land from that day forward. It's a different kind of lifestyle. And if what they thought they had was good, well, just wait till they have what God's going to give them now. And if they thought life was, was okay in the desert, or some of them even thought life was okay in Egypt as slaves. Remember, they wanted to go back to that. If you thought that was good, just wait till you see what's in store that God has for you now. Amen? Amen. And that's, that's where we see them at. Now, you might be asking, uh, Pastor, how does this apply to me? Um, you know, what, what's my role? Because, obviously, uh, circumcision isn't something that we're going to, we're not going to have a big circumcision ceremony, all right? So if you're thinking that, you can get the worried looks off of your faces. But I want us to see the importance of circumcision of the heart. In Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, it says, for, uh, Paul says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What is he saying? He's saying, if, if, uh, for those of you who are proud of your circumcision, because many of the Jews who had become Christians were saying, you had to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul is saying, no. Paul is saying, if circumcision only works... If you're keeping the law. But what we have learned is that all of us are lawbreakers. We have all sinned. We read that in the very next chapter. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Goes on to say, verse 26, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? See, it's not really about the physical side of it. Saying if you keep the requirements of the law, the spirit of the law. Goes on in verse uh, 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, whom even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. See, when we follow the letter of the law and we think that obedience is going to earn us any credit with God, then what happens? We get all the credit. But when we realize the spirit of the law, that the law was intended to show us where we fail, to show us our sin, and then we rely on him. And who gets the praise? God does. And God's saying, circumcision isn't about any type of physical act. It was about where their hearts were. And what was the act of circumcision? It was a public declaration of commitment to God's covenant. That's what it was. And so that's why I want to ask you today, um, what, what about you? Are you stuck in the desert phase? Maybe feeling like you've been wandering around uh, aimlessly? Well, I want to ask you, what's keeping you from moving forward? And in a moment when we, when we pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you want to come and just pray and, and confess something to the Lord, remove any obstacle that is keeping you from going from 
the desert phase and into the, the conquest phase. Are you prepared for what God wants to do next? Where's your heart? Is your heart circumcised? Are you willing to publicly express your level of commitment? You know, it's interesting to me that, uh, that, that in the text it said that they would do a circumcision for the second time. But did anyone have two circumcisions? No. If you look at it, so it's not a talking to individuals. It's a second time because the, their forefathers had done it. Their forefathers had done it. And so now he's saying, now I want this generation to do it. Um, it it's talking about a group, a collective group thing. Where they stand together and they say, as a nation, we know God's keeping his promises. We're going to keep our end of the bargain. We're going to make him our God. We're going to stand with him. And that's the question I have for you today. Are you willing to make that declaration and say, as a church, not just as an individual, but as a church, are we willing to say, God, we see that you're doing some great things and we, we want to be a part of that. And we're going to commit to being what... what Whatever our role is in that. Are you willing to do that? I'd like to just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And if you could even come and stand to your feet for just a moment. I want you to look inside your, your own heart for a moment. And first I want you to ask yourself... Have I ever accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Have I maybe been trusting in the faith of forefathers or the faith of other people, but I haven't been trusting in, in God? If so, then I would like you to come up and I want you to talk to me. Don't leave without talking to me. Now, to those of you, you know you're saved. You don't doubt that. I want you to, I want to ask yourselves, where's your heart? Is it circumcised? And if you're willing to make a public declaration, normally I, I know you can make decisions from, your, from, your, from the pew, you can make decisions from, from uh, up front, you can make decisions at home in your prayer closets, but, but since the application today is about a public declaration of commitment to God and what He's doing, would you be willing to just come forward and just pray and commit that to God? You don't have to spend long up here, but I'm going to ask you to come forward and just kneel before the Lord and pray that to Him. May it be a public demonstration to others too that as a church, we're going to follow God to wherever He calls us, whatever He's called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your Word and how it convicts us. Lord, many of us may be kind of like the, the Israelites in the desert. We need to make that declaration ourselves. Remembering what you've done in the past, but committing to what you're calling us to do right now. And I pray this in Christ's name.